I wonder if uh, any of you here have been through a uh, really big change um, in your life uh, recently. Uh, do you know, there's always something about a really big change that uh, can be very overwhelming in many ways, because on the other hand, uh, there's always a whole heap of excitement, and yet at the same time, a whole heap of fear, a whole lot of doubts. Uh, do you know, when um, Jasmine and I moved to Melbourne from Bort, which is a while ago now, but I think that was probably the biggest change I've ever experienced in life, uh, because we went from a place where um, in Bort, our closest neighbour was at least a kilometre away, uh, whereas when we moved to Melbourne, we were in a multi-storey apartment where our closest neighbour was literally living in our ceiling, and you could hear them. Uh, before Melbourne, Jasmine had never driven anywhere where there was a traffic light. And uh, in Melbourne, they were basically all around us. Uh, we went from a church of 20 people to a church of 300. And it was a massive change in so many ways. And I just remember, it actually felt like we were lost for about the first two years. Uh, because when you go through a big change, there is a whole lot of a whole lot of mixed feelings, in fact. And uh, in this passage, this is where the nation of Israel, they're just about to go through a massive change. Okay, this is where Saul becomes their first king. Uh, this is a huge change to the leadership structure of the nation. And so you can imagine there would have been a whole heap of mixed feelings, uh, some overwhelmed with excitement, whereas some overwhelmed with uh, fear and doubts. And we'll, we'll see that as we go through this passage. But the main reason this occasion is recorded for us today, it's actually to teach us the way God's kingdom operates or the way God's kingship functions. And it's very important for us to understand this because this is actually the way that God's kingship still functions today. Okay, This is how God's kingdom works. And uh, it te teaches us three things about the way God's kingdom works. It teaches us uh, that, that God's kingdom, it's governed by his rule. God's kingdom advances by his spirit. And God's kingdom calls for our renewed commitment. So there are three points that we'll see in this passage. Let's look at those. So first, God's kingdom is governed by his rule. Uh, that's what we see in this first section, this part that Matt read out from chapter 10, um, verse 17 to 27. Uh, this is where Samuel, the prophet, he assembles all the people of Israel at a place called Mizpah. The last time they were there was actually for a day of national repentance uh, because Israel went through this time of unfaithfulness to the Lord. <clears throat> the Lord rescued them from all of that, brought them back to himself. And so they held a day of national repentance. While they're back there again, uh, you might think some of them are trembling. You know, what have we done wrong this time? And they had done something wrong, which is where Samuel begins this, this solemn occasion. You know, they're there to select a king, and Samuel begins the occasion not with polite formalities like you would expect. You know, a big ceremony like that, you would expect a lot of pomp and ceremony, uh, a lot of niceties, formalities. But Samuel kicks it off by getting stuck into the people, rebuking them, saying to them, this all started because you guys wanted a king like all the nations, which behind that, the motive behind that was you actually wanted independence from God. You wanted to reject God as your king. And he says that, uh, you know, you're, not, you're actually not going to get what you want. You are going to get a king, 
but not a king like all the nations. You're going to get the king that God chooses and you're going to get the type of kingship that God chooses because God is still the king. And so to get that, they have this um, public lottery, uh, the casting of lots, and eventually uh, it comes down to um, Saul being chosen. Now, you might actually ask, if you were here last week, you would know that, um, hang on, wasn't Saul already anointed as king? Wasn't that already sorted out? Why did they need to have this um, you know, casting of lots to work out who the king was going to be? We already know who the king is going to be. It's Saul. And the answer to that is... Uh, when Saul was anointed, that was a private affair. The only person who knew that was Samuel and Saul. No one else was in on that secret. And so having this, this event, this is a public selection. This is to show the people that they're not the ones choosing the king. God is. And he does it through the casting of lots. Saul is chosen. And when Saul is finally chosen, it's quite funny because um, he's nowhere to be seen. He, he's hidden himself in the baggage. And, uh, you know, it'd be like, um, you know, when you watch the Brownlow medal count? No, you don't watch that. That's the most boring thing ever. Uh, you know, just reading out names all night. But if you were to, you know, you're really stuck for something to watch and you watch the Brownlow medal count, imagine if when the winner is finally read out and the camera switches to his seat and he's not there. And then, you know, you can see that they're going to every camera. Where is this guy? Where is this winner? can't be found. They go back to the host and he says, I'm sorry, we're going to have to go to an ad break while we look for the guy. I mean, that, that would make the show interesting. That would be an exciting event. And that's how it is with Saul. His name is read out, the camera switches to him and he's not there. Well, you can't hide from God. And so God says, boy, he's, <laughs> he's hidden himself in the baggage. Why is Saul hiding? He knows he's going to be selected. What does this say about Saul's character? Is this a little hint that there's something up? That maybe Saul knows deep down he's not really the guy for the job? Well, that will become obvious as the story unfolds. Uh, but for now, they drag him out. Samuel says, um, you know, look at this guy. Because remember, he's a, he's a head, he's much taller than everyone else. He's a big fella. He looks like king material. And Samuel says, um, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. But then comes the most important part of this occasion. Okay, the most important part is verse 25, where it says that Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. So these rights and duties, this is most likely those, uh, the rules for a king that were laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verses 14 to 20. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And the idea behind those rules is that the kingship in Israel was to be nothing like the kings of the nations. The king in Israel was not to be a law to himself. Okay, because that's what kings are, really. In that time, what, what a king was, a king, he was the law. The king was in ultimate authority over everyone so that whatever the king did, that was the law. Whatever the king decided, that was the law. <laughs> and so if the king did something, no one could question because no one was in a higher authority than him. 
But God's king, the, the king in Israel, was to be nothing like that because the king in Israel, in this case Saul, he was only a vice king. Okay? He was under the true king, God himself. And therefore, uh, the king in Israel, Saul, was to be under God's law or under God's rule, um, just like all God's people are. And this is because God's kingdom is governed by God's rule. Uh, and so to be in God's kingdom, how do you know if you're in God's kingdom? You're under God's rule. Okay, you know if you're in God's kingdom when you are in submission to God's law. And that goes for the people, but it also goes for Saul. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you talk about God's kingdom like that, that God's kingdom is to be under his rule, you know, to have him as your king. For some people, they're like, oh, that sounds terrible. You know, to be in submission to the law, that sounds like a burden. Surely, if God's going to set us free, we need to be free from rules, free from the law, you know, being able to, to live as we choose. That's how... Well, it's how Westerners think of freedom. Freedom from all restrictions, no constraints, being able to do what you want to do. And uh, now, obviously, that's not the perspective of the Bible, but the Bible, when it describes freedom, it actually describes freedom as being under God's rule, that that's where true freedom is, that that's the freedom to be all that God designed us to be. And, uh, and we know that because, well, God, what, what kind of king is God? Is God a tyrant who likes to have people under his control and sets all these rules to make life a burden and awful? Is that the kind of God he is? No. He's a holy God. He's a loving God. And what his laws are, are the very expression of his love. They're the expression of his holiness. And so to live, to, to live under God's rule, to obey his laws, is actually to live a life of love. It's love in practice. It's holiness in practice. That's what God's laws are. And so therefore, to be under God's rule, that is, that's the only place of freedom. The freedom to be all that God has designed us to be, uh, to live in relationship with him. And, and that's, that's the great, there is great freedom in submission to God's law, However, you only ever experience that, that freedom if God has given you a new heart. And we even see that in these next two verses. Verse 26 and 27, have a look at those verses. It says that Saul, uh, well, yeah, so Samuel dismissed everyone, even sent Saul home. Uh, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. See that? There's that little note there. Why is it that they were committed to Saul? Their hearts had been touched. But then verse 27, but some worthless fellows, worthless fellows. We've heard that saying before. That was the description of Eli's wicked sons, those worthless fellows. Anyway, it says that they said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. Um, but Saul held his peace. And so here you've got this little description. So the king is put in place. Some rally to him, are great supporters of him. Others despise him. Okay, talk about the mixed feelings. And uh, why did the worthless fellows despise Saul? Was it something about Saul? Was it his appearance? Definitely not. 
was, was it something about Saul? No, not at all. The reason they despise Saul is not because of anything in Saul, but because of the type of kingship that he has. That's the point that's going on here. Because God, or no, Samuel has just made it clear what type of king Saul is, that he's a king under God's authority. The worthless fellows are like, no, we don't want that. We don't want God's authority. We want, we want to live how we want to live. We don't want a king representing God's authority, and that's why they despise Saul, because they, 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 they see God as a threat to their freedom, and they despise him. And you know, it's this kingship, this kingship that the worthless fellows despise, but the ones whose heart God has touched, they embrace. That's exactly how the world is divided today, still. Okay, because God's kingdom, God's kingdom is here. Where is God's kingdom? It is in his son, Christ, Jesus. Jesus is the true and better king. He's the one who not only represents God's kingship, but as God in the flesh, he is God's kingship. He is God's kingship. And therefore, uh, the worthless fellows today then would be those who reject Jesus as king, who say, I don't want anyone telling me how to live my life, and especially not God himself, who is Jesus. However, those whose heart God has touched, what do they do with Jesus? They embrace him as their king, come under his rule and experience the freedom, the joy of living uh, with, with Christ as king. And they're the ones who, um, like in you know, Psalm 119, uh, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. Okay, that's the heart of the believer. That's the heart of someone who has found Christ as their king and saviour. They just love being under his rule because that is where joy is. That is where freedom is under the true king. And so in terms of application, I wonder, is that the attitude that you have towards Christ today? That you love being under his rule? That you see him not only as your saviour, but as your king? Your king that you obey, that you, you give yourself to in a life of service? Is that... Is that the heart you have? Okay, has God touched your heart so that you embrace uh, the true King, Christ Himself? Okay, because this is how God's kingdom works. It's governed by His rule. Are you under His rule? Okay, that's the first thing. Now, the second, the second thing we see in this passage is uh, that God's kingdom advances by His Spirit. God's kingdom advances by His Spirit. Uh, that's in chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through to 13. And uh, here we see that sometime after Saul was selected as king, the Israelites face another threat. And this time it's not the Philistines, it's the Ammonites. And it says in verse 1 that Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And uh, Jabesh-Gilead, um, if you've got a Bible map, um, you'll find it uh, on the... Um, uh, what is it, the east side? Yeah, the east side of Israel. And uh, that's like a, a city. And uh, Nahash puts them under siege. Uh, if you're ever under siege, there's only one thing you can do. And that is just hold out as long as possible and hope and pray that the army just gives up, that they get impatient and just give up. 
That's all you can do when you're under siege. And uh, things are obviously getting very desperate because the, it says the men of Jabesh um, said to Nahash, make a treaty with us. So that they're saying, uh, you know, we realize we're, we're, um, we're done for. Uh, so let's, let's enter a treaty. We'll become your servants and you can let us live and then everything will be okay. And Nahash goes, yeah, no worries. On one condition that I gouge out all your right eyes. <laughs> and now what's that about? Uh, it's, it's actually about disempowering them. You know, that if he gouges out all of their right eyes and they can't function as um, soldiers, they can't, you know, rise up and rebel against him. Um, because the way it worked back then, uh, the way the uh, soldiers um, did their um, fighting, uh, was that they would hold their shield in their left hand, which would sort of cover their left eye and, you know, with their right hand, um, use their sword and go and attack people that way. Now, if you're holding a shield like this and and <laughs> and you don't have a right eye, do you not? You actually can't see what you're doing. So it's just like help. <laughs> uh, so that's what he's doing. He's disempowering them as soldiers, and in doing that, it says he wants to heap disgrace on all Israel. And, and you know, the men of Jabesh, they're quite attached to their right eye, and so they go, uh, "Can we find another option?" Um, let us go out and look for a saviour, someone who can rescue us. And Nahash goes, yeah, sure, go ahead. Why? He's so cocky, he thinks he can't lose. Okay, he's looked at Israel, they look pathetic. He's got them covered, yeah, give it your best shot, go find your little saviour. So they send messengers out to find a saviour, eventually they come to Gibeah where Saul lived. They spread this distressing news. The implication is, Nahash is going to take Jabesh. He's then going to come after Gibeah as well and all the other places. So everyone are stressed out. This is a disaster. And you wonder, how come they didn't go straight to Saul? Wasn't he their king? Wasn't he this big guy who, who um, apparently could um, rescue them? How come they didn't go straight to Saul? And you start to wonder, maybe the people of Israel have bought into that, that uh, you know, the worthless fellows saying, how can this man save us? Maybe that became a mantra in Israel and people started to doubt Saul. Anyway, Saul hears what's going on. And verse 6 says, when he heard this, it says, The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. So that's the, New Test that's the Old Testament way of saying Saul got fired up. He got so mad about what he heard Nahash was doing. And uh, this is the spirit firing Saul up, getting him into action. And this is actually the second time that the spirit has rushed upon Saul. It happened in chapter 9 when uh, it says that the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among the people. So for the spirit to rush upon him, what it's saying is the spirit is coming on Saul in such a way to enable Saul to do things that he normally couldn't do. Okay, to make Saul into the leader that naturally he wasn't. Remember, he's hiding among the baggage. This is the guy who's very reserved, hates the spotlight. And yet when the spirit comes on him, he becomes this powerful leader and can lead an army of 330,000 troops, lead them into battle. The only other time this phrase, the Spirit of God rushed upon someone, is used, 
is in the book of Judges talking about Samson. You know, when Samson had superhuman strength, it's because the spirit rushed upon him. You know, a man can't go out and kill a whole army with a donkey's jawbone on his own unless he has power beyond what a human can have. A man can't go into an enormous building that holds a thousand people and push it over with his bare hands. Okay, that's the spirit enabling him to do something that, that human strength can't achieve. And now Saul is experiencing that, that strength beyond human strength to enable him to lead in a way that he could never do in his own strength. And the result is, verse uh, 11 of chapter 11, uh, that Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So that's an incredible victory. Incredible victory, but what the passage is making very clear is that the only way that happened was by God's power, by the Spirit empowering Saul. And so this question that was hanging over Saul, how can this man save us? It's answered, and the answer is, by God's Spirit. That's how he can save us, by God's Spirit. And even Saul acknowledges that in verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So the point of this section is to show us that salvation came to them not because the people had a king, but because the king had the spirit of God. And that, that is how God's kingdom works. That's how God's kingdom advances. Uh, it's like Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And do you realize this is probably the only time that Saul functions as a pointer to Jesus? Okay, all scripture is about Jesus, even the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. And this is probably the only time that Saul functions as a, as a type and a shadow of Christ uh, because he, here is Saul. He's this king in submission to God's law. He's this king empowered by God's spirit. And when those two things happen, salvation comes for God's people. Okay, that's a picture of Jesus. This is the only time it happens for Saul because after this, it's all downhill. But this is a picture of Jesus. This, what we see in Saul just for this brief moment in his life is we see the type of king that we need today. We need a king who, who comes in, in uh, perfect obedience to his father. We need a king who comes empowered by the spirit and who comes into the world to rescue a people who are under the sentence of death. See, we're all under the sentence of death because of our sin. We all need a rescuer. And Jesus, he is the king. He's the one who comes and he rescues and he conquers death and he conquers sin for us. How does he do it? Not by wielding a sword, but by going to that cross, by being nailed down and bearing our sin on himself, paying for that, so that we can go free. 
This is why um, when Hebrews um, 9.14 describes the victory that Jesus has won for us, it says that it was through the eternal spirit. Through the eternal spirit, Jesus offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. See that? Empowered by the Spirit, without blemish, that is, under God's law, perfect submission. And that's how he wins the victory for us. See, that's how God advances his kingdom. He sends a rescuer. And by his Spirit, Jesus died, rose again. And that's how Jesus continues to advance his kingdom today. It's by his Spirit. Um, because that, that same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that's the Spirit that Jesus sends into the world. That's the Holy Spirit, okay, the third person of the Trinity. Jesus sends him to accompany the preaching of the gospel so that the gospel becomes the power of God to salvation. Okay, so the Spirit works powerfully to change people. That's, that's how his kingdom advances today. And do you realize that the same Spirit who rushed upon Saul, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit who makes the gospel the power of God to salvation, he is the same Spirit who works powerfully in all of God's people today uh, to change you, to make you into the people that God has called you to be. See, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Okay, what do you need more than anything else in your life today? You need the spirit of God. Okay, how are you going to become the person that God has saved you to be? How are you going to live that in practice? How are you going to become the person whose life is characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? How is that going to happen? Only by the Spirit. Only by Him working powerfully in you. I mean, where are you going to find the courage to, to stand for King Jesus today? What are you going to do on the day when persecution comes? How are you going to stand faithfully for Jesus? Only by the Spirit. Only as He enables you. That's where you'll find the strength. It's strength that is beyond your own strength. That's what the Spirit gives. Okay, because Christ, he advances his kingdom by the Spirit, by the Spirit working powerfully. Okay, so we've seen God's kingdom. Uh, it's governed by his rule. God's kingdom advances by his Spirit. The third thing we see here, though, is that God's kingdom calls for our renewed commitment. God's kingdom calls for our renewed commitment that's in these last two verses in, in chapter 11, verse 14 and 15. Let's read those verses. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now the key phrase here is this phrase um, that they went to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. To renew the kingdom. What does that mean? In other words, whose kingdom are they actually renewing? Because the next verse talks about how they made Saul king there. 
Um, Saul became a king through a three-step process, you notice. He was anointed, publicly selected, and then finally put into place uh, here in verse uh, 14, uh, verse 15, sorry. But what does it mean to renew the kingdom? Is it talking about Saul's kingdom? No, not at all. It's talking about God's kingdom. They need to renew God's kingdom, but in what sense? Well, remember the background to all of this. Remember Samuel's speech on that day when they selected Saul. Remember how he got stuck into everyone. You have rejected God as your king, he said. You wanted, you wanted a king like all the nations so you could be independent of God, so you could go the world's way, you know, just be all about power and money and success and, and all of that stuff. You've actually rejected God as your king. And so God has given them a king, a vice king. He's now rescued them through this king. And they've seen all of that and they now realize, do you know what? We have, we have stuffed up big time. We've forgotten who we actually need. We need God. And so Samuel's saying, okay, let's, let's go to Gilgal. And let's renew the kingdom. In other words, let's recommit ourselves to our true king, to God. Now, we know that's what he means because um, when they go to Gilgal, Samuel makes a speech there. It's recorded in chapter 12. We'll look at that next week. But the whole point of that is that we need to recommit ourselves to God as our king. And Gilgal was a significant place for doing that because that's where they renewed their commitment to God after those 40 years of rebellion in the desert. Okay, God finally brought that new generation into the promised land and there they renewed their commitment uh, to the Lord. Samuel saying, let's go, let's go there again. Okay, let's renew our commitment to God. And do you know, that is actually what we need to do. Even today. That's what we need to do. Uh, we need to renew our commitment to the Lord as King because we, like the Israelites, wander from God. Uh, this, the thing about 1 Samuel is he, there's just this constant cycle going on. The Israelites, they, God saves them, you know, they're reconciled to him, everything's good. And then you get into the next chapter and they've wandered off again. And I know we all go, you know, what idiots? <laughs> but whenever we do that, we're only condemning ourselves because we do exactly the same thing. We've come into this relationship with God. He is our king, and yet we still keep going off on our own way. So what does God do? He calls us back. He brings us back, and he calls us to renew our commitment. And so that's what we need to do. Uh, we need to do this daily even, and we know that because when Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, when you pray, say this, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Do you know what that prayer means? It's saying, God, I want your kingdom to be established over the whole earth. I want everyone to know that Jesus is the true king and I want that to be true in my life. I want to be conformed to the king. I want to live in obedience to him. See, that's daily recommitting ourselves to Christ's kingship. And there is a sense in which um, we need to do that every day. Uh, there's a sense in which every Sunday service is all about that. See, why are we gathered here today? We're gathered to worship God. 
but we're also gathered to recommit ourselves to Christ as King. That's what the service is about. That's why we have a prayer of repentance every Sunday. Okay, we don't do that because it's a nice tradition that we just have to keep maintaining because, well, why do we do that? That's not what it's about. It's because we're prone to wonder. And so when we gather, we need to acknowledge all the ways that we've wandered from God and recommit ourselves to his kingship. So we need to do it daily. We need to do it weekly. Uh, This one's a bit different, but we need to do it monthly (laughs) in the sense that every first Sunday of the month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, what is the Lord's Supper about? It's about looking at what Christ has done for us and recommitting ourselves to him. Okay, we're saying, God, I want to renew my obedience to you. I want to renew my zeal for you. I want to live for you. I want to live in submission to you. And remember, that's, that's where freedom is found, living under God's rule, the rule of the great king. And Jesus, he, is, he really is a great king because he's a king who is our saviour. And he's a king who has kept the law perfectly for us. He's a king who has sent his spirit to change us. He's the king we need. He's the king we need to give our lives to and recommit. Okay, I hope you've done that today. Recommit your, uh, yourself to living for Jesus. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Christ, our good and gracious King. And we thank you, Father, for um, his perfect obedience. And we thank you that um, by the Spirit, he went to the cross and died in our place and rose again. And we praise you, Father, that he is now exalted to the right hand of the Father and that he rules and reigns over all things until all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, We want to see you with our eyes to see that you are the the king who, who reigns over all. And we thank you for your kingship, Lord Jesus, that it's, it's a, a kingship of freedom, of joy and peace. And we praise you, Father, that it's, uh, it's to be able to live the way that you've designed us to live, in communion with you. Lord, help us to see that as the way of life. Help us to embrace that and to turn away from anything that would get in the way of Christ being our king over our whole lives. Uh, Forgive us, Father, for where we forget this, uh, but we thank you for Christ in his grace that he restores us and sends us out to be those who live for him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.